So Philippians chapter 2, where we are today, most commentators would agree that it is the core, the center, the focal point of the entire book. It's big stuff, man. So it makes sense that we get the best and the brightest on the job, right? So you might be asking, oh, so are you introducing the speaker this morning? But no, let me, let me ask you some questions, actually. Um, guess who decided how to divide Philippians up for the sermons? Yeah, Sam. Yep. And on this day, the day we hit the hub, the core, the book of Philippians, guess who planned to speak at another church? Sam. So guess who's been asked to unravel the mysteries at the heart of this book? Not Sam. But all joking aside, it is a privilege to dig into this profound piece of writing from Paul with you all. Uh, we're going to look into the heart of our faith today. And it really comes down to two questions. Who is Jesus and what does that mean for us? Simple questions, but really profound answers today. So my prayer for us today is that we as a church see Jesus afresh with eyes of wonder and awe. And my prayer is that this drives us, Bay Vineyard Church, to a deeper unity in Jesus, in our thinking and our doing, unity in the mindset of Jesus himself. And my prayer is that this Jesus story sinks deep into our bones replacing all the competing stories spun by the world. So, the passage this morning. Please, would you rise with me as we read our scripture this morning? It is as Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Good on you if you actually brought a physical Bible. It's a thing we're trying to do. I forgot mine. But I have it written down on my paper here, okay? Here we go. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, and if any common sharing in the Spirit... If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue. Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Amen. Grab a seat. Well, this is a very well-known passage among Christians. I myself have read it dozens of times, probably hundreds of times. And maybe at the front end, I would have thought it said something like this. Be a Christian. Be nice to people. Jesus died for you. And that's true, but there's a lot more depth here. Oh, great depths of this passage. Now, the story of Jesus is kind of an epic story for which songs are written, the kind of epic story for which songs are written, hymns composed, and uh, that's what lies at the heart of our passage today, basically a hymn, the Jesus hymn, and it will help us today to see Jesus afresh. The Jesus hymn will remind us of the story that he told with his life, and the Jesus hymn will help us make sense of this whole book of Philippians, but our very lives as well. Paul begins the passage with some reminders about what it's like to be in Christ, especially when facing suffering and trials. 
You might know the chapter breaks were added hundreds of years after the letter was written. So this section carries on from last week. If you were here, you might remember. If not, have a look online. But it was about unity in the face of opposition and suffering. And this carries on from there, as you can see these, the start of our text there. Uh, Paul has deep feelings of love and affection for the Philippian church. He knows they experience these things you see on the screen as a group. And these are rhetorical questions for them. And the reminder at this part is that we too, um, uh, yeah, that we too can experience the rich goodness of Jesus as a community, especially when we face opposition and suffering. Encouragement, solace, partnership, compassion, these all accompany being in Christ. But what does Paul mean when he says that they are in Christ or united with Christ? We might say, if you have any encouragement from being a Christian, but this can come across as just a label, and in Christ is a, is a robust way of implying a lot more than just a name. So by saying in Christ or united with Christ, that can give the image, at least in my head, of those Russian nesting dolls, the Matryoshka dolls, but Paul doesn't mean in like that. Um, the language is meant to convey the metaphor of citizenship, family, being in a family, united with a family in a particular nation or kingdom. And so Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Jesus is the head of the family. And being in Christ is open to all. Repent and turn to Jesus as Lord. This is what Paul is getting at. I mean, the alternative to being in Christ, as Paul talks about here, is to be in ourselves. Um, the lie hasn't changed since that serpent in the garden. You can be like God. You can live a more fulfilled life independent from God. Be your own authority. And it sounds a bit like freedom, but outside of Jesus, any other master enslaves us and leads us to ultimate destruction. But that's a whole other sermon. Um, Jesus, in short, uh, with him, encouragement is an understatement. So Paul goes on. There's comfort and solace from his love. Uh, it's his disposition, Jesus, to will the good of others. He will never drive away anyone who comes to him. Partnership and fellowship with the Spirit. When we're in Christ, he gives us his very spirit. Uh, partners with his work with us and with the world. And there's tenderness and compassion. Just like when God described himself to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, he said, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He's compassionate and gracious. So it sounds quite appealing, this list of amazing uh, lists of being in Christ. Uh, but if I'm honest, these things are not always my lived experience daily. And you might agree. So the question is, how do we experience more of this stuff, Paul? And just wait, the Jesus hymn is coming. It's coming at the end of this passage. As we keep going, Paul then uh, gets into the next section. Now just take this statement. Being in Christ is a delightful self-help project. How does that sit with you? <laughs> yeah. um, Paul wouldn't have any of that, as you can see in this next section. He's already said, if you have any encouragement, any solace, any partnership, any compassion, any spiritual pulse whatsoever, then make my joy complete by... And then in Paul's mind, our response is an obvious and natural outcome of being in Christ. And it's for us as a whole church. And you can see here different translations. This section is obviously a call to unity. <coughs> uh, unity in what exactly? Doesn't that give off like a bit of a Big Brother 1984 vibe to conform? And it's hard to say something actually more countercultural at the moment. The secular culture we live in is highly suspicious of any form of external authority. And our secular culture tells us that uh, the authority for fulfilling life comes from within, within ourselves. You need to be true to your unique and special inner feelings and intuitions. But Paul tells an alternative story, and I hope you can see it's very compelling here. So 
So some of the words he uses first, like-minded, it's this word phroneo. And when I hear like-minded, the connotations I think about are what I believe to be true. And what I think about and what we agree to, like theological statements like the Apostles' Creed, such like that. But phroneo is a word that speaks of thinking and intelligence and wisdom that turns into action. It's not just ideas in our head. So it implies both good judgment, excellence of character and habits. It's not just a call to complete agreement on every detail of every idea in our heads. Paul is calling us to unity in thinking and acting in the way of Jesus. Called Christological phrenesis. That's the third Sunday. We've hit up on that one. It doesn't get old. Just keep sticking that feather in your cap. Christological phrenesis. Thinking and acting in ways that Jesus would think and act. There's unity in that. Then there's unity in love. Agape. Agape implies a seeking of the good of the other. Goodwill. Not just deep affection of the emotions. So this is actually very encouraging because you'll find, uh, we will find no end of frustration trying to muster up feelings of love for difficult to love people, but we can choose to will their good. And God is love. Jesus is love. But do you think Jesus felt a deep affection for his tormentors when they spat in his face? Or for the Pharisees when they called him demon-possessed? Yet he always sought their good. So sometimes this required hard words from Jesus, but the end result was always aimed at flourishing. So this is agape, a loyal pursuit of the good. And that's the love that Jesus has for us, and that's the love that Paul calls us to as a church. Then he moves on to say unity of spirit, sumsukos. This implies being of the same purpose, the same accord, the same intent. Um, the pictures of a church heading in the same direction, holding to the same vision of the future. And then last again, he says one mind, phroneo, again. Note the way he bookends this whole section with this word, phroneo, Christological phronesis. You just can't get away from it in Philippians. So there's unity and thinking and acting like Jesus, the mindset of Jesus himself. So I hope you can imagine a church like this. Just look around you. We're getting there as a church here. Hundreds of people in this church increasingly full of unity by thinking, feeling, acting like Jesus would if he were us. United in agape love for Jesus and each other. United in a common vision for the church. We're already on the way, which is what makes this place such a wonderful place to be. And it's really good. God, guide us deeper and deeper into this kind of unity. But how do we make it more and more of a reality? Just wait for the Jesus hymn. It's coming at the end of this passage. So we've got some encouragement from being in Christ. We've got this call to unity. The third section is a warning against selfish ambition and vain conceit. A harsh warning, as you can see. Uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. And that's because these bitter roots are in complete opposition to the mindset of Jesus and the message of the gospel, as you see in the Jesus hymn, which is coming. Um, fourth, and lastly, he talks about elevating others. Again, you can see on the screen three ways Paul phrases this in different translations. When reading this passage in the past, uh, my eye has always been drawn to, in humility, value others above yourselves. I'm a naturally quite a confident person, a nice way of saying uh, prideful and maybe a little bit arrogant sometimes. So I've always found this a very challenging call, personally. Um, I've tried many times to muster up greater concern for others, maybe even greater concern than for myself, but it doesn't work. Um, I can do things that seem humble and selfless, but my inner disposition doesn't change. You know, I can do humble and selfless things because I feel like I'm supposed to do that, but I'm not a humble and selfless person. My desires are still first and foremost to esteem myself 
and to think about my own needs and desires above others. Can anybody relate to those kind of inner turmoil? Anyway, so this verse sticks with me because it seems impossible. I can't, by pure self-will, become a humble and selfless person. I can just pretend. So then why does Paul ask us to do something that's humanly impossible? Well, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Paul knows that Jesus goes with us in the process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. And changes of the heart take time, but there is a way forward. Again, just wait for the hymn at the end of this section. Um, This section, however, might make more sense when you consider the context of the Roman culture. The city of Philippi, the book this was written to, uh, the letter was written to, it was a Roman city, and the members of the church were Romans as well. So what did this section of the letter read like to them? Uh, Status was a big deal to the Romans. We live in a culture that values status in some ways, status from likes or followers maybe, Um, and there's a sense of status in the presence of people with perhaps great wealth or political power or fame, but individual status doesn't govern our daily interactions. Quite the opposite. Tall poppies are chopped down around here. So from Stephen Fowles, according to the common political wisdom, concord, friendship and harmony, depended on people understanding their status, knowing who was superior and who was inferior, and giving to all what was due to them based on their status. In this view of things, for those of high status, humility would have been at best inappropriate and worst, socially destabilizing. So in the Roman culture of the day, relative social status and social position were guiding desires. The goal was to climb higher status, enjoy superiority and greater honor and prestige over others. And in that world, humility was a character trait just suitable for slaves. So when we read, consider others as better than yourselves or more important or your superiors, this isn't about moral superiority before God. Paul's not calling us to see others as better humans and to belittle ourselves. He's calling the Philippians and us to elevate the social status of others. So keep in mind, humility here doesn't mean to think less of yourself, but rather to think of yourself less. To be firmly confident in our identity in Christ, and then from that place to elevate others. If you think about Paul's words through this lens, avoiding selfish ambition, seeking higher status, avoiding vain conceit, an inflated sense of importance, and to humbly consider others our social superiors, not only does Paul call the church to elevate others, but also their interests, Uh, to help others get ahead, you can see how this would have been just hugely subversive to the Roman culture at the time. So I was thinking about us. You know, we don't live in a status-saturated world like the Philippians did. For us, we live in a culture that highly values personal fulfillment, authenticity, individual freedom. I think Paul might say something like this. Do nothing merely for personal fulfillment or vain authenticity, but in humility, give up your freedoms to seek the gains of others. Look not only to your own fulfillment, but also to the fulfillment of others. Yeah, take a moment. What does that look like in your family, in your friendships, at your school, at your work, here in the church community? Can you think of people around you who you've seen who already model this in some way? And be inspired by those people. Uh, In what relationships or contexts do you notice that you already embody some of this yourself? And rejoice with the Holy Spirit in those things that are already happening. But then also think today, what are the invitations today from Jesus, from the Holy Spirit, to dig deeper into this kind of way? To be fair, when you look at this list, it looks pretty ambitious. 
We've talked about unity, casting off selfish ambition and vain conceit, humility, elevating others and their interests. And it sounds pretty utopian, man. Have you seen how human beings work around here? We Christians talk about humility, but often we really only put it into practice towards God. Because as a Christian, it's relatively easy to be humble before God. He's perfect. He made everything. He's absolutely trustworthy. He's unfailing. And his eternal loving kindness and goodness are never in question. But being humble before other people, that's the problem. So what do we do? From N.T. Wright, the answer is that everyone must be focused on something other than themselves. And that something is Jesus Christ himself, the King, the Lord, and the good news which has come to take the world over in his name. So, the Jesus hymn. It is time to read the Jesus hymn, the heart of the book of Philippians and this entire passage. Here we go. I'll just bring it before your minds again. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset from Neo as Christ Jesus, Christological phrenesis, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is explosive, guys. This is epic. Um, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus emptied himself. And Jesus is Lord. And following that, a clear implication for us. Um, this is the model for us. So we're going to dig into this. Have a look at the opening lines of this Jesus hymn. Does that language of equality with God sound at all familiar? Just think back to the five words from the mouth of the serpent, Genesis 3. You will be like God. So think, who was it who so, so arrogantly grasped at the chance to be like God, knowing good and evil? I think Paul is intentionally alluding to the story of Adam and Eve with the serpent to remind us of how we got into this mess and that Jesus has come to bring redemption to the whole thing. Adam and Eve, only ever made to exist as the image of God, grasp at the full nature and form of God for their own gain. Jesus, who actually is in very form and nature Yahweh, empties himself of his glory for the sake of others. It just reverses the whole story and reverses the whole rebellion against God. And we see that Jesus then is the model human and he shows us who we're meant to be. It's awesome. Okay, now that said, the language here makes it sound like Jesus was one in form and nature with God, but then somehow he let go of his godness when he became human. Somehow that the Father and the Spirit remained fully God, but the third member of the Trinity was demoted for 33 years and wasn't really God for that time. But of course, that's not Paul's intention here. First, Paul is not saying that Jesus gave up his equality, rather that he is equal but didn't use it for his own gain. Second, Consider the claim at the end about every knee and every tongue that we sang this morning. That is an allusion to Isaiah 45, fiercely monotheistic passage. You can see bits of it on the screen. That was a passage about God, Yahweh, and Paul attributes that language to Jesus. Third, you can see the same reality in John's vision of Revelation. This is the picture I had in mind as we sang that song just now, where Jesus is seen as a slain lamb, receiving all glory and honor and praise alongside the one who sits on the throne. So from N.T. Wright, here then is his point. 
The God who will not share his glory with anyone else has shared it with Jesus. And Jesus' progression through incarnation to death must be seen not as something which required him, as it were, to stop being God for a while, but as the perfect self-expression of the true God. So think about that. Jesus is Yahweh, the name above all names, all worthy of all praise. It somehow feels inappropriate for me to use God's name Yahweh for Jesus, but Jesus referred to himself as the I am when he was here. It's true. Jesus is Yahweh. It is a profound mystery at the heart of this text. So then, what does it mean when the hymn speaks of how Jesus made himself nothing or emptied himself? Um, as implied more literally in, the, literally in the Greek, emptied himself. The word used here gives us the theological term kenosis. That's the second theological feather you can tuck in your cap today. Last one, kenosis. There's no more. Kenosis, the notion that Jesus emptied himself poured himself out for the sake of others, made himself nothing, from very form of God to the very nature of a slave or a servant, the very opposite of selfish ambition and vain conceit. So this emptying metaphor takes on different nuances and different meanings for different schools of theology, but consider these two aspects. So first, practically, before taking on flesh, Jesus dwells in heaven with the Father and the Spirit, in the enormity of power and knowledge and presence of Yahweh, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, yet he intends to be born as a baby to a young Jewish girl on earth. So can you imagine an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient baby? No. <laughs> no, of course not. They're enough trouble as they are. Um, he will need to sleep. He'll need to eat. He can die. So he, of course, needs to set aside some aspects of his divine nature as Yahweh. He's born as a baby, yet still Yahweh, the sense of emptying. But second, he emptied himself or became nothing in the way he chose to live his life as well. Born to a simple family, worked with his hands, ate with sinners and tax collectors, touched the lepers and the unclean, washed his disciples' feet, submitted himself to death. Yahweh emptied himself in his whole life and became nothing. Uh, from the very form of God to the very form of a servant. Man, that says a lot about the nature of Yahweh. Who is this God? would do such a thing. Again, from Stephen Fowles, self-emptying is not so much a single act as the fundamental disposition of the eternal relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. The incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus become the decisive revelation to us that self-emptying that eternally characterizes the triune life of God. It's like Jesus didn't just put on a cloak of humility for 33 years. It wasn't just a one-off burst of enthusiasm for the human race that motivated him to empty himself. This is who Yahweh is, then and now, forever. So this hymn describes what Jesus is like. And because Jesus and Yahweh are one, the Jesus hymn describes what Yahweh is like too. This is what Yahweh is like. Now, Jesus didn't even use his divine power or his authority for his own gain in any way. He refused to use his power to even make himself a loaf of bread in the desert. So consider for yourself, what power, privilege, position, wealth, or authority do you carry in your walk of life now? With your family, again with your friends, in society, in work, in school, in this church? And how do you use your privilege and authority? You know, to whose advantage do you tend to use your privilege and authority that you have? Every time we use our privilege and our power and our authority, whatever it is, to serve and elevate others, this changes us deeply. It's a part of our spiritual formation. 
from John Tyson. The most transformative acts of our lives are likely to be the moments where we radically empty ourselves in the very settings we would normally be expected to exercise authority. Let's say it again. The most transformative acts of our lives are likely to be the moments where we radically empty ourselves in the very settings where you would normally be expected to exercise authority. It's a powerful way to walk in Jesus, with Jesus, in the process of being formed in his image for the sake of others. But as we move on, the Jesus hymn doesn't stop there at this kenosis, this emptying. Paul declares how God has been, Jesus has been exalted. Um, Given the name above every name, that all knees will bow and all tongues confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The Father who doesn't share his glory with another, but shares his glory with Jesus because they're one. So this is important too, this Jesus is Lord. Um, it's, a, it's a drum we beat here all the time. We bow, we confess, and we confess that Jesus is Lord. Um, and yes, Jesus loves us, of course, with his agape love. He wills our good. But you have to understand that Jesus' love is not the whole gospel story. Our good is to submit to him as Lord. Independence from God leads to destruction in this life and the next. Jesus is our authority, our Lord, leads to fullness of life, now and forever. But it's not a passive thing where Jesus does all the heavy lifting and emptying and dying, and we say thank you and carry on. The Jesus hymn we're reading here demands of us, who is Lord in your core, yourself or Jesus? Because if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is the center of authority in your life, he will lead you to become like him. And he emptied himself. You know, the, the implications are big. Um, so let's talk about that again, this emptying. <clears throat> As we approach the end of our hymn here, um, it's so easy to become inoculated against the wonder of Jesus becoming a human, to empty himself of his glory. So use your imagination with me, okay, to flesh this out. Get it? There was a joke there. Israel waits with yearning and anticipation for the promises of God to be fulfilled. When you read something like Isaiah 11:4, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked and others like this. You can understand they were expecting a mighty conquest, maybe even by Yahweh himself, maybe by an empowered leader like the days of David. So it's hard to overestimate the shock and the paradigm shift required to make sense of God himself as a humble man, a man who died. They did not expect this. Um, Writing himself into the story of humanity as a human character is outrageous. But he didn't even come as a person of worldly importance. No worldly authority, worldly wealth, no worldly influence. Just a Nazareth boy. You'd expect Yahweh to enter the scene with a flash and a bang. But look at how he's born. Born in a barn, under harsh Roman occupation. Born to a single mother a perceived bastard child, and raised in a small village. We would expect Yahweh to come of age and start making moves on the international scene. But as he grows up, he works with his hands. Most of his adult life in Nazareth, blue-collar, small-town Jesus. When he finally gets around to it, we would expect Yahweh to conduct a ministry of might and power that would quickly spread across the whole world. Yet, when Yahweh himself walks on the earth, he spends the vast majority of his time in the wops of rural northern Israel, walking around, eating meals with a bunch of weird people, telling stories. Yeah, he demonstrates incredible authority and incredible power. But even his closest friends don't really understand uh, who he is or what he's trying to do until after he's gone. 
You know, during his three-year ministry, he's constantly misunderstood, rejected, opposed, despised by those in power. And at the end of it all, he leaves about 100 dedicated followers. The lifetime work of Yahweh, God of the universe, 120 scared followers behind locked doors in the back corner of the Roman Empire. And then you'd expect the end of his time on earth to be marked by an explosive result that's felt immediately across the whole planet. But look at how he concludes his life. His life is crushed by the Jewish leaders and the Roman Empire with a painful and shameful criminal's death on a cross. He's stripped. They spit in his face. He's punched in the head. Yahweh is killed by the leaders of his precious chosen people. He submits himself to it. He is crushed as a criminal. Yahweh, a man like a nobody, just a mangled corpse on Friday. These mysteries are so hard for us to comprehend that Jesus came as a small person, a nobody, a servant, a misunderstood and rejected person. He just totally emptied himself. And of course, if the story ends there, we are in the wrong religion, man. Empty yourself, elevate others, and die. But of course, Jesus didn't throw his life away. As Jen said, the story doesn't end on Friday. Watch out for Easter Sunday, man. He had a plan before the creation of the world. And Jesus demonstrates the incomprehensible power of living and dying in this way. As crazy as it sounds, this life of self-emptying modeled by Jesus, elevating others and their interests above our own, this is the way to the good life. The good life is modeled by Jesus. Of course, if humans wrote the story of Yahweh coming to earth, we would make it look a whole lot different. But from the perspective of heaven, such a life is the only way of bringing heaven to earth. Just consider three things. We're going to look at how Jesus himself experienced life, what he accomplished, and look at what happens if we do the same. Just quickly, look. Despite Yahweh coming to earth in a seemingly small and humble life, Jesus bursts out of the pages of Scripture with authority and confidence and joy. He's deeply sure of who he is. His identity is solid. He's full of joy. He's living with all the fullness of life. He is the model human in every way. So those with eyes to see were drawn to him like a moth to a flame. He's very compelling. The second, what did he accomplish through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension? I mean, we know there is now power in the name of Jesus, for each and every human on the face of the earth to break free from the power of sin and death and evil. Because of what Jesus has done, each and every one can join his church, become citizens in his heavenly kingdom, become children of God, adopted into his very family, move from death to life here and now, and the invitation is for each and every one. And through his emptying, his coming to earth, he has defeated evil, he's defeated death, he's defeated sin. That does not sound like a loss. The Jesus way is powerful. And there's more. Jesus accomplished profound mysteries with his death and resurrection, but he's also shown us how to live. Consider that when we here at Bay Vineyard Church live in the way of Jesus, humility, elevating others and their interests, when we share in his love and we live in unity with him as the head, we bring the kingdom of heaven here on earth as it is in heaven, and we bring God's will done here. It's actually a taste of heaven if we live this way, and it's really contagious. Jesus didn't live like this to make our lives difficult, guys. We live this way because we love Jesus. We want to be like him. We live this way because this is who Yahweh is. And we're made in his image. So he made us 
to be this way. And he's a God of love, agape love. So he's made us in such a way that living like Jesus will bring the greatest fulfillment and the greatest joy possible and the greatest fullness of life. He's made us this way because he is this way. The question today is, do you believe it? Do you trust it? Do you trust him? To get practical, just think back a few years ago, those of you who were here, do you remember it? We had a day at Napier Boys one day. Um, when those who felt weak and hurting, they came up to the front at the end of the service and everybody else queued up behind them to receive prayer from them. I remember because Terry was up at the front and I came up for prayer from Terry and uh, it was just a very powerful and moving day. In, in some ways, the weak praying for the strong. And again, was anybody here when the children came up front and prayed for the adults at the end of the service not that long ago? You can see on the screen. You know, who was deeply moved by these experiences? I was deeply moved in these moments. And I had a hard time articulating why these moments were so moving for me. But I can see it now. The reversal of status. Those the world considers low were elevated. And those the world elevated were considered low. These moments give a flash of insight into the kingdom of God where we elevate others and empty ourselves. It's deeply moving. And I think that's because we're meant to live like this. There's power in embracing this Jesus mindset in even small ways. Again, just getting practical. Consider how we use the valuable commodity of our attention. Just a couple stories. Use your imagination. It's evening after a long day. Feels like it's your time to sit down and do that relaxing thing that you do. Come on, some of you are there right now. And then the kids. Please put us to bed. Please pray for me. Okay. Um, and then they're telling some inane story from their day. Or, or raise the age level a bit. Some teenage drama from the day. Or maybe it's your wife or your husband. Or consider this one. You're in the middle of a really busy day at work. Really getting into it. And you go to grab a coffee, and that slightly awkward person, kind of on the periphery, tries to strike up a conversation as you're heading back into it. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you still at school, just imagine it's lunch, and you're off to see your mates, finally, after being locked in class hour after hour. And then one of the more ignored kids walks up and tries to talk to you. And you just imagine these situations. They happen all the time. And it's, we easily feel superior socially to these people. Well, at least I do. Maybe you can relate. It's an easy trap to fall into, to kids, to the socially awkward, to the ignored, to those who seem other or different. And one of the powerful ways followers of Jesus can elevate others is to simply give people our attention. Just listen to people. Look at them. Put your things aside in the moment. And with time, maybe even enjoy ourselves while we do it. Because we learn to love with agape love like Jesus does. I mean, just read the gospel with an eye to Jesus being distracted by kids, strange, awkward, social outcasts, and you will definitely see a clear pattern of his response. He's always giving people of his precious attention. And it's somewhere we can all start. But let's be honest, we often think we have a better way. We often expect to find salvation and flourishing by clinging to our own life. I'm sure you can feel it in yourself. I sure do. Fighting for my own independence, clinging to control of my own life, clambering to reach the top of the stack and get the good stuff first, chasing my own fulfillment through self-expression. But how can we think ourselves so clever as to find a better way? Do we think we're more insightful and wise than God himself in Jesus? 
I mean, just imagine a world where the opposite of Paul's exhortations are taken to their natural ends. Just imagine a day where you look only to your own interests and increasing your status. Imagine a day where any gains you make are for your own delight. The interests of others are invisible to you, irrelevant. You celebrate your pride. You enjoy your superiority. You go hard after your own fulfillment, expressing your own unique self without thought to any consequences. Just imagine that a day with your own family, each one behaving like that. Ugh. I think that would actually lead to hell on earth. No, no, the good life is found in this way modeled by Jesus. As we close, just don't, don't hear me wrong this morning. We are invited to be in Christ on the basis of faith. That is foundational to the gospel message. But Paul is showing us that we become like Christ by action, by participation with the Spirit, participating in his sufferings, this emptying, this becoming nothing, putting into practice, following his example. Just look ahead in Philippians. You see it on the screen. Paul says, that I may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, but in the same breath, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Or again, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen, put it into practice, and then the God of peace will be with you. Or join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as, you have, um, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. It takes intentionality and hard choices to be formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. We need to get the mindset of Christ deep into our being. You know, the world around us is con consistently and constantly telling us a competing story. And the world's story often seems much easier Live a more fulfilling life, independent from God. You are your own authority. Live for yourself. It's so easy to lose our grip on the truth and authority of the Jesus story. That story is hard to hold on to. It's so counterintuitive to our sinful minds. And so if we don't make other plans, the world around us will shape us instead of Jesus. So we need to get this story into our bones. You know, it's no accident that Paul included a hymn at the core of his letter here. The songs we sing shape the kind of people that we become. The songs we sing shape what we love, and what we love shapes who we become. So the Holy Spirit's ready to work with us uh, and change us, but he works with us. So it's like Paul said at the end of Philippians, fix your thoughts on what is true. Not just once. Sunday's not enough. I can tell you, after staring at Jesus... For weeks, day after day, through this hymn, pondering this sermon and pondering this story, Jesus is so clear to me right now. He's so present. He's so compelling. He's so powerful. I can see my heart and my mind changing day by day just through this short process. Fix your thoughts on what is true. Of course, we engage in the Bible and in prayer, but we need to think too, of course, about our podcasts and our books and our shows and our news and our music and our movies. Can we choose ones that tell the Jesus story so we get it deep into our bones? So, in conclusion, I hope you can see why Paul hinges his whole letter on this call. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. A willingness to empty ourselves, to become nothing, to humbly elevate others in their interests. Because this is the mindset that includes thinking and acting based on Jesus himself. The Jesus life together in unity. 
So the question today is, do you really believe Jesus? You know, do you really trust him and his life, his character, his life? It's so easy to deflect. That was good for Jesus. It's not for me. But you don't understand, he made you. He designed you to be like him. So turn to him, pursue him, be formed like him for the sake of others. Whether living in Roman society or this modern secular culture, the call is to follow the example of Jesus who gives up what is seemingly most precious for the benefit of others. His heavenly glory, his heavenly status, his very life. In the economy of the kingdom, this brings heaven here on earth. A wise man once said, what good is it to gain the whole world but to lose your very soul? After all, he who loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. It is true. So we end with a call here, guys. Remember Paul's questions at the start. Is there any encouragement from Christ? Any solace in his love? Any partnership with the Spirit? Any compassion? Do you remember Paul's call to unity and thinking and love and action? His warning to cast off selfish ambition and vain conceit and his exhortation to elevate others. We attain these lofty heights by getting the Jesus story deep into our bones by being with Jesus, becoming like him and doing what he did. So I have two invitations for us today as we finish up. Um, I just want you to think about these things I'm about to say. What are you thinking and feeling about Jesus this morning? Is he compelling? He loves us. He loves this church. He wants what's good for each one of us here. But what's good for us is to bow the knee, to confess with the tongue, Jesus, you are Lord. I am not Lord. And that's not just a confession you make one time. It's a daily confession. The first day you decide to follow Jesus, all the way to the last day of this life, we follow Jesus. Jesus, you are Lord. I am not Lord. This is one way we can respond today. Second, do you want to have the mindset of Jesus? Do you want to think more like him and act more like him and have all this encouragement and solace and partnership and compassion and unity and mindset, love and purpose and elevating others and their interests and experiencing the full and good life of Jesus? Then tell him this morning, I want to be like you, Jesus. I want your mindset. And listen to his voice because he'll show you the next steps. Is there someone you just need to pay more attention to to elevate? Is it a matter of our thoughts? Is it a matter of doing something differently during the week? He'll guide you into the next step. He's loving and gracious and gentle. And the next step may be very small.